and our scripture text is in the 73rd Psalm. Let's talk a little bit about the, the 73rd Psalm. The writer of the 73rd Psalm, in this case, is not David. <clears throat> it's actually a man. It's attributed to a man named Asaph. A-S-A-P-H is attributed as the writer of Psalm 73. Most likely, it's the same Asaph that David, when he was king, appointed to be the chief of music in the temple. First Chronicles mentions a man named Asaph that was the son of Berechiah, and he was one of three leaders of music in the temple. So we will go with the, the thought that this is the same Asaph. Since he was a, a leader of music in the temple, it would only stand to reason that he wrote some of the psalms or the songs that they sang. He's also credited with writing Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through 83. And you'll notice we talked the other day about in your Bible, most of the time you'll find between the number of the psalm and where the text actually starts, it will see, it will say a psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph and it will attribute who the writer is. And then a lot of times the the subject or what was going on around the time that it was written. So there is a, a purpose for that in between the number and the actual text. <clears throat> Second Chronicles tells us that down the, the road in history <clears throat> that temple worship had stopped and there was a king came along named Hezekiah and he restored worship in the temple and when he did that, part of what he did was to order the Levite choirs to sing the songs of David and Asaph. So again, that is another reason why we tend to believe that he was one of those writers and, as a chief of music. <coughs> uh, let's go to our scripture text. I want to read Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, <clears throat> this psalm, again, if you remember back a few weeks ago, we were talking about how the, the text was set up in a certain way in a lot of the psalm. The solution was stated first, and then the writer would go back and explain all of the circumstances that took place to get back to the solution. This psalm starts off with an affirmation to God's goodness to the pure in heart. It starts off and you think, oh, this is going to be a good psalm. You look, let's look at Psalm 1. <clears throat> Very positive. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And you would think it's going to follow with all of these blessings and praise, but. Now I would say it's possible that Asaph wrote this psalm after he had already gone through the whole circumstance. And he started it off on purpose that way. To let everybody know, when you start reading down through this, don't get so depressed that you stop reading it, because here's the end, is at the beginning. <clears throat> Jesus also spoke of the pure in heart. Uh, in Matthew 5 and 8, as part of the Beatitudes, 
He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So it's another another um, mention of the pure in heart and how that they will be blessed. That was Asaph's version and then Jesus' version in the New Testament. <clears throat> in verse 2, we see a problem addressed that is possibly one of the most perplexing problems that we as believers face. And that's this. Why does it seem that the wicked prosper so much when so many godly people suffer? Now, if you've ever thought that, it's not a new idea. Because this is what was in that scripture that we just read. As Asaph watched the success and the prosperity of the wicked, it almost seemed to him that it was a contradiction of God's promises. Now, I know no one here has ever felt any of those feelings, so we're going to just blame it all on Asaph here this morning. But he was really honest. He said, when I looked at the prosperity of the wicked, I almost lost my foothold. It almost caused him to lose his faith in God. Because he thought, I, I'm supposed to be blessed. I am one of God's children. And I look at those people and they seem to be doing so much better than me. He goes on in verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> and this is amazing. When you get to a certain point, you start thinking in hyperbole here where everything's overstated this is how he looked at the wicked they have no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong they are free from the burdens common to man and they are not even plagued by human ills when you are down and you start thinking that way All of a sudden, everything out there is perfect. These people don't even get sick. They are not afflicted with all the things of the common people. Verse 4. They don't even have any struggles. Every one of them, their bodies are healthy and strong. And look at me. And what happens is, that starts to eat at you. And what it did here was it didn't just confuse him. It made him envy what he saw. First, it was confusion because he said that he really didn't understand why it would happen that way. But that confusion quickly turned from just not understanding to just flat out envying something that someone else had. Because it seemed that with his problems in his life... And I'm a child of God. Why is it that they have no problems at all? Of course, he didn't know their life, and he didn't know if they had problems. It was just from his perspective. Psalm 73, verses 12 and 13. He goes on to explain. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. The word carefree here means that they ignored God. 
they just they didn't pay any attention to the precepts or the the rules or what God thought about right and wrong. And since they didn't hold to the same morals and the same accountability to God, they could increase their wealth by cheating, stealing, deceiving, whatever. And Asaph saw that. And he said, I do right, and this is what I have. And they're just carefree, just going through life, not paying any attention to God. And look what they have. It's almost to a point that it seems that he is lamenting his choice to keep a pure heart. Maybe second-guessing that he was doing the right thing. And he referred to washing his hands. Washing of hands was a symbol of purification. The priests, before they went into the temple, they washed their hands. Before they offered a sacrifice, they washed their hands. And he's basically saying, by washing my hands, I've remained pure. But it seems to be in vain. The fact that I've decided to live for God doesn't seem to account for much. Stay with me here. And again, at that point, I believe that as Asaph was being honest, he was saying, I don't know if I've even made the right decision. Maybe if I would have done some things differently, things would be different in my life, and I'd have some of those things. Psalm 73, 16 through 18. When I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. He said, when I tried to understand this, I got depressed. I got frustrated because I didn't understand why things were like that. I didn't understand why the godly people didn't seem to be blessed like the ungodly. And those that did wrong seemed to prosper. Now, I want to be honest with everybody here this morning, everybody listening to this. I have felt exactly that same way. In fact, in my business, I have seen, in fact, there is one person I know of that has come in to work for other dealers that I know and has absolutely ruined them and made them go broke. Four times in the city of Lakeland which is not a very big town, the same person has gone in and absolutely destroyed this person's business. He goes somewhere else, destroys this person's business, walks away with money in his pocket, and within the last 90 days, he has started again. And I look at that and say, how can that be? How can that be that... Everybody in Lakeland knows this guy's a bad guy. How can it be that he can do that? And I don't seem to see the same thing happening in my business. You know what? It's exactly what Asaph was talking about. Yeah, but if he doesn't, if he said what, he did what Jesus said, Satan reign and be chosen and the other 
That's exactly right. It was only when he went into the sanctuary, when he went into the temple, or even better yet, when he found himself in the presence of God, the answer came to him. When he he viewed the wicked through God's perspective, he saw their eventual and inevitable end. In verse 18, he said, Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin they might look okay right now but if they're not serving god the end result isn't going to be good that was a different perspective and it was only when he went into the presence of god could he see that god had allowed those people to build their lives on slippery ground or a deceptive ground, something that wasn't stable. And they built everything they had on that. And Asaph finally saw that and said, but what I have is built on something solid. He knew at some point that the foundation that they had built on would collapse and it would bring them to a catastrophic end. When he finally got to a place where he wasn't looking so much at people, but was listening to God, all of a sudden he understood it. And it's it's not just that he felt better. His thinking was changed. There's a difference in in just saying, okay, well, since you explained that to me, God, I, I feel better about it. No, it wasn't just feeling better. He changed his thinking. He didn't want to be like that anymore. I don't want to be over there. Let's look at verses 21 through 26. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, this is talking about before, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Before he got his thinking straightened out, he wasn't thinking rationally. He said he was grieved and he was bitter. He said he described himself as a brute beast. I was just ignorant. But somewhere in that struggle, he finds the truth about the wicked and also the truth, this is the most important part, the truth of God's love for him. And he acknowledges that regardless of all of that and how it seems that I don't have that much, there's one thing I know for sure, God is always there. And it wasn't so much that he held on to God, but that God held on to him. Verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by the right hand. Isn't it a lot more comforting to know that God is holding on to us than we're holding on to Him? He knew that the wicked would eventually slip, because of, but because of God holding on to Him, 
he would never slip. Verse 24, he speaks of, of God's guidance through counsel. He said that you, you led me in the direction through, through your counsel. I listened to your voice, and because I listened to your voice, I was able to, to go where you wanted me to go. Verse 24. And through all of that, he found his security. He realized that his security wasn't in himself. It wasn't in his abilities. It was in the fact that as long as he was following after God, holding to God's hand, and God was holding his hand, that he had a promise of something greater than what he would ever have on this earth. He said, afterward, you will take me into glory. If I don't have very much down here, I know that afterwards, I will have something there. There's an old song that they used to sing. I never sang. Something about build me a cabin in the corner of glory. Let me tell you what. I don't want a cabin in the corner of glory. That's, there's nothing in the Bible about having a cabin on the corner of glory. I want a mansion on streets of gold inside gates of pearl with walls of jasper, just like the Bible says. I might not have it down here, but I'm like Asaph. Afterward, I'm going to glory. I don't have to worry about the things down here. When he got his priorities right, all of a sudden, guess what? Amazingly, he found the solution. Verse 25. He realized, I can't take any of this stuff to heaven with me. He said, the earth has nothing that I desire besides you. There is nothing on this earth that I would rather have than you. Isn't it amazing that when you change your view, how all those things changed? When he realized how great he was and the, the ultimate downfall of the wicked, he didn't want all that stuff. Now, for just in case somebody leaves here today and says, well, he says we should get rid of all our stuff. And No, I'm not saying that. If you live in a 28,000 square foot house with an 18-car garage, God bless you. I hope, I, I'm glad. I really am. I'm not saying you need to go get rid of your house or say your car or anything like that. I'm saying with what you have, be content. Because you can't take any of that with you. Verse 26. He said, though things happen to me here, though my flesh and my heart fail, I know that you are my strength and you are my portion forever. Now, through all of this, what exactly was it that Asaph was feeling? It's real simple. One word. Envy. And it, it's kind of interesting that envy is a very common sin. It's something that, if we're honest, probably every one of us have had issues with at some point. And a person can be a faithful churchgoer, live a morally good life, and yet at the same time harbor envy in their life 
that will damn their soul. Unfortunately, it's one of those sins that's seldom confessed because we don't really want to admit we have it. And if we're not willing to admit that we have a fault, we're probably not going to ask for forgiveness of it. Webster defines envy as chagrin or discontent at the excellence or good fortune of another, resentful, begrudging. That's a dictionary definition. We've seen kind of the Bible definition. As believers, we are admonished to love one another. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love and envy cannot exist together. It can't. If you love somebody and you truly love somebody, you won't envy them. If you look at parents, for the most part, when their children become successful, they're proud of their children. They don't envy what their children have. Because why? Because they love their children. And that shows you right there that love and envy don't, they don't mingle together. In Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, envy is listed in a, a group of sins that are considered works of the flesh. Let's the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord. And we get to that part and we go, man, that's some bad stuff. Jealousy, which in the King James Version is envy. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. And envy, drunkenness orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right in the middle of all of it is that little word, envy. And it's one of those things that we would look at that list of of sins of the flesh that Paul listed, and we would say, well, I, I would never do those things. I would, I would never do that. But envy is one of those things that can sneak up on you. It's not like robbing a 7-Eleven that later you look back and you go, I don't know what happened. I was one minute, I was putting gas in my car, and the next minute I was standing there with a gun telling the teller to give me all the money in the cash register. I don't even know how that happened. It doesn't sneak up on you. Robbing the 7-Eleven didn't just sneak up on you. You thought about it, you planned it out, and you did it. Envy isn't quite like that. It's not one of those things that we really plan to do. It's one of those things that kind of happens. How does it happen? Well, first of all, it's not always intentional. Here's how it happens sometimes. We're very, very happy with our house until our best friend gets a five-bedroom, four-bath, three-car garage with the bonus room over the garage. And all of a sudden we look at our house and go, wow, I thought my house was okay. We're content, content with our eight-year-old car until our neighborhood, our neighbor pulls up with a brand new shiny one that we saw on TV. And as we're watching the, the 
commercial, we're going, wow, I'd like to have that. And the next week, our neighbor pulls up with it in his driveway. Up until that point, we were perfectly fine with our car. What is that? If we're not careful, that's that envy that sneaks up on you. And if you ever did that, I'm going to tell you this. Not that I'm saying that it's okay, but you weren't the first person to ever do that. The Bible gives us some great examples. In fact, it started off very, very early in the Bible. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, Cain killed his brother Abel. Why? Envy. He was jealous of his brother because his brother offered a sacrifice that God accepted and didn't accept his. And he killed his brother because of it. Rachel envied Leah because Rachel was barren and Leah had a bunch of kids. And she was envious. That's in Genesis 30 if you want to follow up and make sure I didn't just make this up as we went along. Genesis 26, the Philistines, or Philistines, whichever you prefer, were envious of Isaac because it's, the Bible says he had possessions of flocks, herds, and a great number of servants. And the Philistines were envious. In the New Testament, in the book of Luke, there's a parable told of the prodigal son that took all his stuff from his dad and said, this is everything that I'm, I have coming to me. And he went off to find his way in the world. Well, he loses everything and he ends up coming back to his father. And his father welcomes him back and throws a big banquet. But his brother was envious. He was envious because of the, the treatment that his father showed to the younger brother. And it caused bitterness. In Proverbs 27 and 4, the King James Version, wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? It classifies envy as being worse than anger and wrath. Basically, what, what he was saying is wrath and anger is one thing, and it's bad, but it's nothing like envy. That's right. That's right. That's right. We see in... In Genesis also that Joseph's brother sold him as a slave. And the main reason that the Bible gives is because they were jealous of the treatment their father showed to Joseph over the way he treated them. Envy. You go on a little bit further down the road and you see that Saul was the king of Israel. And at some point... David became anointed as the new king to take Saul's place. And although David had been anointed to be king, Saul wasn't happy about that, and he was envious that David was going to be the new king. You know what he did? He tried to kill him. He chased him all over the country trying to kill him because of envy. In the New Testament, Jesus 
was crucified. And the main reason, other than it was in God's plan, but the earthly reason that it happened is because the religious leaders of that day were afraid that Jesus was going to take the power that they had away from them. It was all because of envy. Because of envy, in the Old Testament, in fact, this is in Esther chapters 5 through 7, there was a man named Haman. He had a, the gallows built for a man named Mordecai to be hanged on. But you know what? Haman ended up being hanged on those same gallows. And it all started because of envy. There were some people that were envious of Daniel that the king really liked. And so they made a plan for Daniel to get in trouble through a proclamation of the king so that Daniel ended up in a den of lions. But you know what? The lions didn't eat Daniel. But look in Daniel 6 and 24, what happened to them? At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. If you look at the last two examples of Haman and the people that rose up against Daniel, we see that envy envy can be suicidal. But I will tell you this. Envy is not just out there in the world among evil people looking at other evil people. It's not out there in the world just at godly people looking at the prosperity of the wicked like Asaph did. If we're not careful, envy can run rampant in the church. It's exactly right. Envy in a church <clears throat> can come in many forms. I will assure you that envy over a talent that one person has that somebody else doesn't have has caused more than one bad attitude in a church. Envy over recognition that someone receives. I'm talking about church now. We're not talking about out in the world. These are us godly people. Somebody gets recognition for something they've done, and somebody gets envious over it. person could be envious of a position that somebody has been asked to fill in the church. Well, why didn't they ask me to do that? I'm just as capable. I'm very qualified to do that. In fact, I could do a lot better job than them. And let me tell you what happens. Even at my very young age, I've seen this. The person that's envious will often drag up some old, repented-of sin in the life of the person they're envious of and just happen to mention it to a couple people. And let me tell you how that, how that works. It starts kind of like this. Look at him. Boy, if they only know, knew what I know about him. And if we're not careful, the person standing next to him goes, really? Well, what do you know? But we're not going to go there because that's a whole other message 
on gossip. And we're just not going to teach that one today. There are pastors, as Brother, Brother Ashley said, there's pastors in churches that are envious of other pastors in other churches. They see the success of another congregation. And instead of being happy for that congregation and for the kingdom of God, they're envious. If that ever crosses your mind, let me just mention this. Maybe it's because they're working harder at doing it than what we are. Well, then I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just start going to that church. Well, let me tell you something. If you weren't doing what you should be doing at your own church, you probably aren't going to help that church a whole lot by going there and not doing the right thing. Buy the tape and listen to that one again. Because that in itself is another message on finding yourself in the kingdom of God, and we've covered that several times, and we won't go over it again. Why be envious of another church? Why be envious of another church's success? We're not trying to build a kingdom down here. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples, they thought that he was going to build this kingdom, and they got into this little argument over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom when Jesus rose up to be ruler over the earth. They didn't realize it wasn't about down here. When we see a church that is just overflowing and busting at the seams, we should be glad that people are finding God and their lives are being changed. No, that doesn't mean that we we throw up our hands and say, well, let's just go over there. No, because there's people here that need to be reached too. There are people that will be reached through High Point Church of Brandon that will never be reached without High Point Church of Brandon. And I'll bring it down a little bit further. There are people that will never be reached unless you reach them. They will be your responsibility when you stand before God. In Galatians 5, 25 and 26... Keep in mind, Paul wrote this to the church at Galatia. He didn't write it to the heathens at Galatia. He wrote it to the people that were in the church. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So in case you doubted that it happens in a church, it happened back then. And it was important enough that that portion of the letter that Paul wrote to that church has been preserved through all of these centuries so that we could have it right here this morning to talk about. So it's a big deal. So how do we overcome envy? One of the things is love. 
We've already said that love and envy cannot coexist. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy or envy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We are to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. I will assure you that there has never been and never will be an envious thought in the heart of Christ. If we clothe ourselves in Him, if we take on His identity and have the love in our heart that He has in His heart, that love will help us overcome envy. I guarantee you when Jesus was walking the earth, there were people that had a whole lot more than Him. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a place to live that was really His own. He lived with other people. He didn't really have anything other than what he carried with him. So there was obvious a lot of people that had a lot more than him. But you know what? He never lost sight of what his purpose was. And he never said, well, you know what? I'd a lot rather have the things they have than to do what I know I have to do. First Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? So one of the other things that we can do is to grow up and stop acting like babies. That's what Paul said. He said, I I fed you like babies because that's what you were. But it's time to grow up. Become more spiritually mature. Don't stay where you started. If you are still in the same spiritual maturity level as when you got saved, that's not good. Because if a child was born and at about the age of two, they stopped progressing mentally and physically, we would look at them in pity and say, they're mentally handicapped. There's an awful lot of spiritually handicapped people out there too. They've been saved for 35 years, but they've only progressed a couple. Remember, Paul listed envy as one of the works of the flesh in Galatians. He also said in Galatians 5 and 16, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If we walk in the Spirit, if or rather if we are guided by the Spirit, we can overcome envy. Remember what Asaph said in Psalm 73 and 24? He said, you hold my right hand. 
you guide me with counsel. He knew that he had to follow after God to be able to overcome those feelings that were in his heart. He Remember, he tried on his own. And all it did was it depressed him. It made him second-guess whether he was doing the right thing for living for God. But he knew what the answer was. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they will form one body. So it is with Christ. We're talking about envy in the church. We're all members of the body of Christ. Verse 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Paul was saying the physical body has no envy. And and there can't be envy in the church either. The foot doesn't envy the hand because it can't do the same things. The hand doesn't envy the foot because we run on our feet and we can't run on our hands. Maybe you can't. I can't. (laughs) Hebrews 13 and 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content... With what you have. because And it doesn't end there. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Doesn't that sound an awful like what Asaph said? Be content. You want to overcome envy? Be content with what you have. I'm not saying don't be, don't be aggressive and, and try to, to attain more in life. I'm not saying that at all. I, I hope... Fifteen years from now, I have more than I have. But because of the blessings of God, not because I looked at what somebody else said and I'm going to have that someday. Totally different way of going about it. When we are content with what we have, it's very, very hard for envy to gain a foothold in our life. Think about it. When we're content with what we have, envy can't get in there because we're not looking at everything that everybody else has. right you know it's it's great to look at something someone else has and go and say wow that's fantastic you know brother ashley and and several others are getting ready to go on a trip a trip he was telling me about wednesday night they're going to south africa and they're going through all these different places that i'll probably never get to go to but as he was telling me about it i was thinking i am so glad that they're getting to go because that is so cool. And they've wanted to do it and they're finally getting to do it. How cool is that? Or the other choice was to sit and go, well, they shouldn't be able to go if I can't go. (laughs) 
Another thing we can do is ask for God's help. James 4 and verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? The writer was saying that the fleshly spirit that dwells in us, it lusts or it wants to envy. That fleshly part of us wants to envy. It wants to look at those things out there. You know why? That's how we know why we do it, because there's something in us that wants to do that. But look at James 4 and 6. But... He gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. What that means is that God's grace is necessary in overcoming envy. When we realize that we have something greater than anything out there in the world, we have the grace of God. Something that nobody can buy. Richest man on earth can't buy it. Cannot buy, cannot afford what we get for free. But they can get it for free too. Even with all they have. So we can overcome envy if we'll do these things. First of all, we have to consider what envy is. We have to consider the evil nature of envy. We have to consider the associates of envy. Or, in other words, those who have envied in what their outcome was. We have to consider God's strict prohibition against envy. I think we've covered today, and we will leave this place saying, I know God doesn't want me to envy. And that's a vital part in overcoming envy. Know that it's not pleasing to God. Consider that envy is suicidal. Sometimes it comes back and gets you. Consider the destiny of the envious. And then we need to apply the principles which ensure us of a cure of that envy. And I will end with this thought. This lesson or message is is primarily focusing about envy. And hopefully we leave here today with a new perspective. Because one thing for sure, we can't see the problems in our life if we're not willing to admit that they're even there. David said at one point, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. We should have that same prayer that, God, I want you to search my heart. And if there's some wicked, evil thing in me, let me know so I can take care of it. If there's envy in there and I've never been able to admit it, help me to get rid of it. And though that's what our lesson is primarily about, through the Scripture that we read in the book of Psalms and the writings of Asaph, there is something else that I want to point out. We could end it with the short version of Asaph didn't have much. He looked around and saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was envious, and God straightened him out. 
But it goes a lot deeper than that. After looking around at whatever everyone else had, in Psalm 73 and 26, Asaph saw this, that God was always there to lead him. And finally, that God was the strength of his heart and his portion forever. That should be our prayer today. God bless you. I want to thank Pastor Magine for teaching the Sunday school lesson for me last week. It was a wonderful job, and I thank you very much for that. God bless you.